0: Live, juicy, inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the Food and Beverage Magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz.
1: Boop! Oh. Hey, somebody tell Boop. a joke.
2: What is going on today?
1: This is very exciting to be here, I have to say. It is? Yeah.
2: You don't seem excited.
1: We have a jam-packed and fun-filled show. In the second half of the show, we're going to tap into one of the big trends that's coming, which are these boxes that arrive, and it's kind of like a surprise. You don't know exactly what's going to be in it, but it's going to be filled with you know, snacks or fashions or other things. Well, somebody's taken the idea of these wonderful... Uh, Subscription boxes and figured out how to load them with the best Asian snack foods because nobody on the planet, they say, does snack foods Mm. as well as people in Asian cultures. Mm. But that's because they haven't had my popcorn, but I digress. Mm. But in the first half of the show, as part of our mission to get to the top of the information food chain during this COVID madness, We've talked a lot, as you know, about what's going on, and and people keep bringing up real estate. Well, my landlord, my landlord this and my landlord that, and I'm not gonna have money to pay my mortgage or my rent or my, you know, the implications of the interconnectedness are brought up pretty regularly. And one of the things that we need to do is make sure that we get information about what actually is happening and being done When the White House had their big uh, round table, which wasn't a round table at all, but they had a round table summit meeting uh, with the restaurant industry folks, not enough was made of the real estate piece of that. We're looking high and low for information about how the real estate that literally supports the entire hospitality industry is dealing with all this. And so we had the chance to go right to the top. And that's what we're doing today. We're talking with Robert Greenstone who is one of, for the last 30 years, one of the most respected and successful commercial real estate brokers in, uh, in North America, working out of um, Manhattan in New York City, and he joins us from his offices there, and it's a pleasure to welcome him. Robert, how are you?
0: Fine, thank oh, you. Sir. Great seeing you. Hi, everybody.
1: You know, I have to be honest with the audience. We were having so much fun sort of in the green room with you backstage before the start of the show. You've got great stories. And it's really it's, it's very generous of you and wonderful of you to come here and be here with us. <clears throat> what's going on? Let's just start off by saying what's going on in New York as a New Yorker, as a lifelong native New Yorker. Uh, tell us, paint a picture, if you will, about not just real estate, but, but what's going on in the streets? What, what is going on around you?
0: Well, uh, New York is very unique because of its population density. And the, uh, like all locals, uh, there's a culture that happens in New York that um, is apart from the, uh, the tourist, the actual dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker and how they're responding, because that's essentially who's left. The tourists are not here. Um, The businesses that um, usually have people coming in are closed. So we're basically left as New Yorkers for the first time in isolation. Matter of fact, when you walk down the street, it's surprising that you aren't hearing any honking horns. Um, You can go out virtually any time and you'll find that um, you could uh, you could take a bowling ball, as they say, and you could roll it down on the street, any street. Uh, The the, uh, thing is that as New Yorkers, as culturally uh, diverse as we are, a lot of people are taking to social distancing and a lot of people are using their masks. Not everybody. And it's kind of unfortunate to see that not everybody is doing that. They have the attitude that This is part of their social freedom and and we understand it. But, you know, honestly, when you when you pass by people that aren't wearing masks, they get the looks and there are these little exchanges that go on with people because everybody in New York understands the death toll that's happened here. The fact that there's been so much suffering and um, we 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 aren't used to it because what we're used to is a cacophony of of everything it it has it it goes across all spectrums from entertainment and food but also to the arts and the museums and then of course the businesses that are generated here and the tourists i mean it's very striking to see nobody in Times square uh to see billboards that have gone dark because the uh, companies have uh, stopped advertising there because there's nobody there to watch it so no one's paying millions of dollars to have uh their signs up and so um, we're seeing a a, um, a real challenge. Um, it's it's sort of traumatic in the way that for the average person, not the people that actually been affected by COVID personally, but even the people that are just walking their dogs, everybody feels at edge, and so this is affected um, everybody's lives throughout. There's nobody. The are door- you okay? Yeah. Yeah, you get you get afraid at different times and for different reasons. Um, We were initially much more frightened, I believe, than we are now. Um, I think that uh, it has settled in a little bit, and we have more information. So the information we have is that if you touch a surface, it's not necessarily going to kill you. Initially, we had no idea what was going to be, and we were going to be spraying all our shoes and taking off everything and washing every twenty-two seconds and what have you, which are all, all great advice. But because of the uh, the, the, the strength of and the viralness of the uh, pandemic, uh, it's really hurt and it's hurt in populated areas such as Queens um, and Brooklyn because of the density of the population there. Um, Robert,
1: as, as chairman and founder of Greenstone, one of the leading uh, commercial real estate firms in North America, you had a, and have a unique perspective on what the impact is on, when I say business, I mean all business. Of course, we're particularly interested in the hospitality business, which is primarily where you've had the greatest successes in your career, but you do uh, an even broader uh, scope of work. But in particular, can you give us a sense of what's going on in the real estate industry, in the commercial real estate world, Are businesses in New York and New York City open? Are they not open? Are they sort of open? Are they half open? Where are we and and what does the picture look like from a commercial real estate standpoint?
0: It's very bifurcated. Um, When you are talking Midtown Manhattan and the office population is not there and there's no chance to pick up any of the tourist uh, business, uh, you're closed. There's just no business uh, that warrants turning the lights on. Uh, when you are in a neighborhood—Upper East Side, Upper West Side, Chelsea, uh, Tribeca, things like that—it's uh, on a case-by-case basis. A lot of it has to do with um, the way people have initially operated. Um, you know, price points make a very, very big difference in the in the pandemic. Uh, When you have something like a um, a celebrity chef, for example, uh, they have name and staying power, and they could sort of create related products that they could stamp and and, um, brand all to themselves. Uh, You mentioned before uh, the uh, boxes that one could create for desserts and treats and things like that. Uh, It becomes a little bit more difficult if you aren't a well-recognized name. When you have that brand name recognition, you have a little bit more latitude, but it's certainly not easy because then you have to find out different channels of distribution. Remember, retail, and and you have to look at this uh, very simply at first. Retail is a channel of distribution, and uh, we were going through a a tough time with the advent of e-commerce, No more electronic stores, no more music stores, no more bookstores, no growth in this, no growth in that. And then the retail stores that were there were hanging on. So are
1: are you telling us that immediately prior to the pandemic hitting that there were certain retail and commercial brand enterprises in New York City that would have had a storefront or a retail presence that were already struggling?
0: Absolutely. Matter of fact, if you take a look at Third Avenue on the Upper East Side, which is pretty much considered the Gold Coast uh, of where people live that have money there in Tribeca, but the density is on the East uh, on the Upper East Side, or for that matter, on the Upper West Side, uh, these are residential areas. That, and so people uh, had uh, a need for a product. But you, you were seeing, because of e-commerce, a, a 20% vacancy rate. If you went up and down the store, uh, the avenues, you would see store after store on Third Avenue that were was vacant because uh, they were financially challenged. They were selling, just so you understand, there's a difference in selling a commodity than there is selling a uh, a unique item. When anything you can get is available on online, you, you certainly could sit there at 3 o'clock in the morning and just order it. You could do your groceries or whatever you want. Um, celery is celery. If you don't like the way it's picked out and delivered to you, you pick somebody else who's going to deliver it. But it's a function of convenience, which leads me really to um, – uh, a feeling that I have that the phrase location, location has less relevance today than it ever did. Location, location, location has been transplanted with convenience, convenience, convenience. If you're in a location that's convenient, and that's really what locations have all been about, you have a greater proximity, a, a stronger proximity to your customers who are going to be buying your specific cost, uh, goods and services in greater numbers. When you cut that out, let's say you take a, a restaurant tour. In our case, we're talking food and beverage, and they're making a certain percentage. They know what their food costs are. They know what their employee, their, their HR costs, marketing, real estate, everything like that. And they are getting six, eight, ten, twelve percent profit margins if they're lucky. And you take ten percent of their business away. What's the first thing to go? So anytime. You go, you go into a negotiation. The first thing that um, a, a retailer will say to the landlord is, you don't feel my pain. You feel my pain after a while if I don't pay rent, but you don't feel my pain because I'm your buffer. I'm the one that's actually giving you the money that you need in order to make your numbers. I need to make my numbers every day. And when my business goes down, and it could be bad weather, you know, being a former retailer, We always used to jump in the car to see what our competition was doing when we were slow. Of course, we didn't have a chance to do it when we were busy, but we'd always see our competition was also slow. When we knew when they were busy, we were busy. So we know that everything is really um, uh, happening all over. It's not happening in isolation, provided, of course, we're we're running with the assumption that you're running a good business. You're not at fault or there's some operation.
1: Yeah, I want to jump in here. during an, a non-pandemic economy, we have a metric, a measurable, that tells us what the unemployment rate is. And that indicates a lot of information about the health and vitality of the economy, how many people are in work, out of work, how much right. money is flowing through the system, et cetera. And that number traditionally was, was generally under 10%. Of course, today it's much higher what what is prior to the pandemic the vacancy rate in manhattan for commercial real real estate but in particular the retail real estate that is the sort of home of most food service operations restaurants celebrity chef restaurants and you know some of the big chains that are in new york
0: again it depends on the area <laughs> And you will have uh, truthfully, uh, vacancy rates will average, let's say three percent, four percent, things of that nature. That has gone up tremendously. Um, so I think that um, you'll uh, you, you'll find that now with a uh, you know, it, it's also very, very obscured. You have for rent signs, and then you have today, you have a lot of tenants. Or waiting to, for the lease to be over, and then they're going to vacate. So that number is really being obscured by the fact that you have a credited tenant who signed on the lease and just can't get out. But they may not be renewing. the The, the impact is that landlords um, have to recalibrate their thinking, and there are basically two kinds of landlords. The first is I own the property for a long time, so I have a very low basis. And so my cost of real estate is relatively low. Then I have somebody who's done a recent purchase and they they paid top dollar to get properties. And as a result, they need to squeeze every nickel out of it. That doesn't mean that all landlords don't squeeze every nickel out of it because we all do. Business is business. It's all about money. But when you have no options, then you have to start thinking about what I'm going to be doing. And of course, we all get a dose of religion when um, times are tough.
1: Do restaurants pay more money for rent in a retail space in New York than an electronics store, or a clothing store, or a pharmacy? Typically, and why uh, is that?
0: Well, there are, there are there are two uh, reasons. The first is that uh, let me just say that not every space can become a restaurant. For uh, coding issues, uh, you can't get vents and flus. You can't get certain things that are part of the infrastructure of building it. The other is that um, you're paying a premium to have the installation. If you think about it, 80, 90% of all restaurants have been at restaurants prior. As a result, you're paying a premium to get in line for not having to build that out. So, for example, I, I have a very dear uh, client of mine, and, and they do an um, excess of 100 uh, and. I, went, I think it's around $160, $170 million a year out of 11 restaurants. Very successful. Very successful. He started by only leasing previous previous failures. He then decided to go in and test opening up in places he thought had a lot of traffic and had a need. And he's backed away from that even before the pandemic, even before we started having e-commerce. And he's not really affected by e-commerce because of what he sells. Uh, but he but is a restaurant. he's a, he's a restaurant, but his price point is is such that he he fits uh, the everyman uh, category really well. And he could uh, you could sit down and have a meal and not be choked in terms of the price point. And so he gets everybody, and people love to do it, and they're not ordering in so much. I mean, he literally has, um, 18,000 foot restaurant doing $24 million a year. Uh, I don't want to name names, but that's a serious number. So, um, when you have n- numbers, numbers like that, uh, you say, Oh, I could, I could do anything. No. The reason he's successful is because he's known that he has to cannibalize somebody else's failure. And that's what a lot of people do, especially here in urban areas. I'm not saying anything specific to, um, to New York City, if you're, if you're given a chance between uh, put, putting in a million dollars or putting in half a million dollars, you're going to be leaning one way or the other because a lot of things are risk management.
1: Um, Robert, I want to ask Michael a question because he's recently uh, written a book called The Food and Beverage Magazine Guide to Restaurant Success. How important is the real estate piece of the startup of a successful restaurant equation um, featured in your book? That book? Yeah.
2: Just want to make sure we show the book. I want to make sure Robert gets a copy at Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble, Robert, okay? Well, we'll send Fifth him. Fifth Avenue. Yes. Fifth Avenue. Um, it's very important, right? And what? Listen, my background, my education is in real estate, right? Like I went to the Kogod School of Business. I have a business degree. But all that is based off of real estate, urban development, real estate finance. So everything we've learned is real estate, right? What I do now in magazine business, it's real estate. But this I, is
1: I hear location location location. But Robert's telling us that in this well, day and age, and moving forward, that might not be the case.
2: You know, here's the thought: Every, I've got restaurant tour friends that are like, I need to be on First and Main. I need to be on the busiest street there is. I'm willing to pay the most, right? Well, that doesn't always work. And Robert knows this. That's not always the solution because there are restaurants that are in warehouses that are killing it, right? Which I write about in the book. There's one called Amalfi in Rockville, Maryland. They've been around for 40 years. And they're always busy. Why? Because they're consistent. And really, if they give abundance of food, they do all the right things, right? So, so I think in more of an urban area like in New York, you can be off the beaten path. People, As long as you're not too far away in walking distance, people will still come if the product is right. Now, going into second-gen stuff, like second- and third-generation restaurants, sometimes that's the only way you can get into your – when you have a spark to open up a restaurant – Sometimes that's the only way to get into a restaurant because you can't afford to do your build out. Right. Sometimes there's even equipment in there and all kinds of great. We talked to Tag we talked to Neil Sherman, who's up in upstate New York and has all kinds of new and used, you know, equipment and for, for really great prices, right? Yeah. There's a way in. There's an, an ignition, there's, there's a fire inside these guys, and they'll figure out how to do it. Um, so Robert and, and even Robert could say that because some of the guys that are now, let's say they're doing 160 million they had to start somewhere they started they had a fire inside they started somewhere and they they did what they had to do to get into their first spot
1: so robert given that there is probably a lot of negotiation that is going to need to happen over the next year between operators and landlords and our hope is that as the equation is evaluated do we open or do we wait and people are are making that Decision for themselves as well as well, listening to the government. I'm coming. of well, more down.
2: importantly, Je- Jennifer. Jennifer, more importantly, if they can only open at fifty percent capacity, their rent is still going to be hundred percent, right? And their chef. And we talked to Elizabeth Blau about that, right? right, right. So it's like, so what I'm, do they do? Like, what's what, yeah. what's happening out there, Robert? What are, what are the landlords doing? Are they helping? I mean, what, you're you're right in the middle of the
0: war right there with that. So what's what's uh. Uh, this is the billion-dollar question right now, and this is happening all over, regardless, actually, of whether or not you're in retail or you're in office, because your employees are stay-at-home. So um, right now, there's a lot of develop, uh, discussions going on with landlords, and there's a lot of pushback. Some of the landlords understand that what they have to do is they have to cave at this moment, but they're looking to do one of two things. Either recoup their losses at a future date, which is going to be very, very difficult, quite frankly. Um, it, it, just use this analogy. When you are uh, negotiating for with, with a new landlord, the landlord comes in and says, I have a bank that's stopping me from charging less than X number of dollars per square foot because it ha- I have to cover his pro forma, his number. He's only interested in the financial. And I can't give you a rent of less than X. But what I can do is I can fudge it a little bit. And the way I fudge it is by giving you more free of rent and more tenant improvement money. But I have to have steeper increases later on so my Average rent comes out, my aggregate rent comes out, and I can show the tenant, uh, show the uh, lender. The problem is that after the tenant is in, there's very little chance that that tenant is going to be able to absorb that increase over and above what normal rent would be in order to satisfy the landlord. I mean, we're talking about a balance here. And at the end of the day, is the space too expensive or not too expensive? You'll find, though, in in a little bit, uh, I want to answer something that you said just a few moments ago, which was that, do you need the most prime location? You'll find in New York, the majority of the restaurants are on side streets. Very few are on the avenues. First, they can't afford it, and they already know it. But the more successful restaurants, and I'm not talking fast food, because McDonald's and Burger King are a little bit different than, and Popeye's are a little different than uh, Giuseppe's. Uh, but you will find right. that these side streets offer um, uh, better value. And in addition to which, people will walk around the corner. Um, we uh, are waiting to see what happens with a company like Le Pan Quotidian, which has closed all its stores. But when I met with their CEO, he said, what do you think of our real estate? And I said, I thought it was pretty smart. You're taking what I consider one-off locations, meaning near the corner or near the traffic generator. But you're a little bit off because people know mm-hmm provide and they're going to go out of their way for you. You have brand recognition. The trouble is today with the pandemic to get to also a lot of what you're trying to get at is am I well capitalized enough to absor- to last as long as it might be and am I well capitalized enough to then reboot my business? And I'm going to try a solution. I'm going to buy into what I could do to get money quicker. I'm going to offer different kind of foods. Like in New York right now, the uh, State Liquor Authority has allowed people, stores to sell liquor for the front of the stores and there are crowds congregating on the outside on the streets, all drinking and picking up their masks and and doing whatever. These are new ways that uh, the state government is trying to help restaurants get a a revenue stream. But uh, you'll find that at the end of the day, um, some people could do it and some people can't, and they can't do it successfully. Right. Well, Robert,
2: here's my thought.
0: Yeah. They have to rethink,
2: right? Repurpose, reimagine, right? Re- just as we just said, reignite that, that energy. Yeah. You've got to rethink your process. You've got to rethink, like, what are my customers? You've, if you have been, you're not starting from scratch, right? Jennifer had a good point to me earlier. She's like, oh, it's a do-over. It kind of is a do-over. Either you're successful or you're right. kind of successful or you're not. Now you finally have the time to sit back and worry, right? I was, I was on a call the other day with Coca-Cola, and they're getting great information to their customers, great information, great COVID, great security, great safety instructions, right? But nobody's there holding the hand of these restaurant owners going, dude, you can do it. You did it before. You can do it again, right? You right. created this. Now well, go Robert, deep. I want you to Let's...
1: imagine Michael becoming the Tony Robbins for restaurateurs and operators all over North America to get that jazzed up, fired up. We're gonna not only reopen and it's all gonna be better instead of going in with fear and nervousness. Part of the way we're trying to do that is to elevate their excitement about going back in their business with better information than they had before all the experience they've garnered and knowing what to leave behind. So that's why we're reaching out to people like you to come in and say, help us get some really solid, valuable tips about the mindset we need to get to and into to be able to go back when we reopen to be as fired up, to be as successful as possible.
0: So let's start at the beginning of the process. The process is right now. The process is I have to write checks right now. And what do I do? Having been a former retailer, having written when I didn't have business for one reason or another, $20,000, $30,000 a week just to cover certain businesses. I know the pain. And that's why I I have the sympathy for what people are going through. You have to look at this as a rebooting. But you have to also say, what makes me special? And what makes me special is not usually 20 things. It's usually one thing. Peter Lugas makes one steak. I know a deli that made a fortune for its family on potato salad. It's just they did their thing of magic. And they had to figure out what it was. In a situation like that, to start today, when you're writing checks that you really don't know if you're going to be able to cash, you have to start communicating. You have to communicate with your landlord. Whether you like it or not, whether your stomach pain <laughs> or not, you have to speak to your landlord. And I know the aggravation and frustration of having to make that call, which you right. Don't- so
2: don't be scared, right? Go out there and don't be scared. Be who you <laughs> are, right? Listen, here's the thing though, Robert. Like they ha- you're right. I agree. You must have read my book. Did you get an advanced copy? Because we are talking about find that like Peter Luger's find that steak. Find that pot. What is your one dish that nobody else can make? Right. It was the one thing when um, when I launched the magazine twenty something years ago. Bobby Flay and I would talk. Right. Mm -hmm. And Bobby would say to me, "Don't ever, don't ever critique anybody. Don't ever review anybody. They could be having a bad day. Maybe you ordered the wrong thing. But they always have that one thing that makes them special. Right. right. Always the one thing. So it's sort of like I agree. Now let's go back. And it's almost like let's go back to that." With that same passion, um, call your landlord. Like, don't be you know be be aggressive about it. Call the guy, call the or the company or I, whoever I, it is. Uh,
0: we're talking on Food and Beverage Magazine. We're not talking about food and beverage and gardening. We're talking about right. something very specific. And I'm talking about retail and restaurant leasing. What happens to a retailer who has the wherewithal? First off, again, it's always two choices. I want to do this or I'm taking the keys and I'm throwing down the sewer and I'm walking away from this. If I want to go forward, then what the hell am I going to do? So the process starts that you have to talk to your landlord. The second thing is you have to communicate with your customers. You have to make, you see, a lot of people have transient business and don't know how to gather the information about their customers. They take it for granted that their customers will like them and come back. They certainly use uh, things like Grubhub and whatever to get names and other information about people who shop with them, but how are they utilizing that information to now, when it's really important, how do I monetize my relationships with my existing customers to keep them informed of what I'm doing and to keep my name recognition out there? The other thing you have to do is communicate with your employees because they're very, very frightened right now, and so Communication is really the best thing you can do. The other thing is you have to be honest with yourself. What are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? I would say that if you aren't sure, then you might as well sit down in a corner and ask your friends to call you and tell you really what your strengths and weaknesses are because they know absolutely, it. Not, absolutely. But they know it, all right? Absolutely, ask your mom and dad. Ask your children. Ask your spouse. Whatever it is. This is a time for self-examination. Don't beat yourself up, but find out what your strengths are and figure out how you want to do it, because this is a time of self-reflection.
1: Robert, can you, um, can you stay with us? We're going to welcome our next guest, uh, sure. and he's in a business that five years ago, three years ago, might have only been a brick-and-mortar business with an ancillary online presence, and today the kind of business that he runs is is really primarily going to be an online business and but some of the core components of customer service customer data management relationship management product offerings they're going to be so many of the same things that you would have been familiar with in your days as a real um business uh, not a real um as a a retail business owner and now in the retail business of real estate um, and it's really a pleasure to welcome him. He's the founder of Boksu, And if you've been seeing these subscription boxes in all different categories, as a foodie, I've been paying very close attention to the ones that have goodies from different parts of the world. If you're an expatriate going to school or living in America and you miss the taste of home, well, that's one main driver. But there's so much more. There is a world of delicious truly irresistible snacks that most of us have never even heard of. Some of them might have an ingredient or a name that might make us uh, seize up and cringe just a little bit, but that that are delicacies and, and commonplace in other parts of the world. That's an easy headline. Oh, shocking, shocking. I'm going to eat a bug. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the kind of connect with comforting familiarity and delicious irresistible assortments of snacks that our next guest has been curating. And uh, Michael, I know uh, it is safe to say that you are the uh, king of the snacks. Alongside, (laughs) we're a couple of snack lovers. Danny Tang from Boxu, welcome.
3: Thank you, it's good to uh, be on the show and um, talk with you all. Um, Hello, Danny. Hello, young Danny. Hi, Michael and Jennifer. (laughs) Not that young, but yeah.
1: Talk a little bit about the category that you're in, because it's not a category that existed five years ago.
3: Yeah, so I mean, I'm in a relatively new space. It's um, There's been a lot of different branding terms for it, but I would say generally speaking, it's a direct consumer e-commerce space. So similar to things like Harry's or kind of like Away Luggage and that type of thing where it's entirely digitally native. So we've never had a brick and mortar. Uh, we don't plan to have a brick and mortar anytime soon, um, and like, it's almost this reverse situation where nowadays a lot of these big brands first start off online. And if they reach a level of success, then they try and distribute it to brick and mortar.
1: Talk about boxu, and what do you do?
3: Sure, yeah. So um, I kind of have one of our boxes here. just kind of show it really easily. Oh, <laughs> That's <laughs> so Bokksu, good. Yeah, we are a subscription box and kind of media content platform for Japanese snack food discovery. What we do is- we Danny, directly Danny, I'm gonna put
2: you, Danny, Danny. Yeah. Jennifer, did you get a box for this interview?
1: <laughs> no, but Jen. I want to know what's in it. Let him talk.
2: I'm going <laughs> to let him talk. I just wanted to see if something was going on secretly behind the door.
1: Well, I, I, <laughs> I didn't get one and you didn't. I didn't I, we didn't have one box assigned to us, and I squirreled it away, sitting back <laughs> in, my, in my cubby hole, I thought that box went to Tucson
3: and Miss Vegas. I just didn't know it was
1: Miss Vegas. (laughs) I would be
3: happy to send you both a box. I
1: I have to say, I am a lover of uh, Asian snacks. Just stop
2: there. You're just a lover of Asian snacks.
1: As a longtime co-host of Fong on Food with the beloved late Nathan Fong, I learned that some of the most delicious things in the world come from places that have to be on my bucket list to visit. And that he showed me what extraordinary goodies awaited those of us who just wanted to go out and give it a try. And the little rice crackers with extraordinary flavors were irresistible. They become some of the best. And, and Michael, part of the reason we're doing this is these are going to become some of your next favorite bar snacks. <laughs> they may not be, they may not be at the dead rabbit yet. They may not be at Clover Club in New York City with Julie Ryan, but they will be places where, I'm telling you, this is the next big thing, and that's why Danny's on with us. I'm sorry we interrupted you, Danny. I apologize. No, I'm going inter-
2: to interrupt you now, Jennifer. I just came <laughs> back from the store, and I got, I've got a jar of fukakaki. I did. I got a jar of fukakaki today alone. That's an Asian. It goes on rice and all. Danny, <laughs> are you familiar with that? Are you familiar? yes.
3: Yes. Okay,
2: you know, and we have, and I got some shoyu. I got some shoyu sauce. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Soy sauce. I'll I got a, a little.
1: I'll show what? you.
2: <laughs> I'm just saying, I got a little Asian stuff today, and maybe, maybe we'll have musubi for dinner. I don't know what's coming out of the kitchen tonight. So I'm very, very well, well, well. What about what about Jennifer? I'm well. I'm well versed in the Asian food culture. Oh yeah, you know what I'm saying. I'm sorry, Danny. I
1: know you. No, not at all. That was wonderful. That was almost a nice like
3: lead-in description into what boxu is. So I appreciated the uh, kind of hype up to what I'm about to kind of unbox and show for everybody. But um, but yeah. So as I mentioned, we directly partner with these like 200 year old family artisanal stack businesses throughout Japan to then kind of curate their products into a monthly subscription box that we then kind of source and pack all in Japan. We include this. 16-plus page magazine that we produce ourselves with all of our own design, all of our own copy of every single product, listing common allergens and how to best enjoy them. And every single month is a totally unique amount of snacks. For example, this one is uh, the theme is Tangy Citrus. You know, my team came up with that. It was a plain on my last name. But, um, and it has things like yuzu-flavored, sudachi-flavored, um, orange and lemon, of course, kind of all these Japanese citruses to kind of um, put into like breads and cookies and cakes and rice crackers and things like that. And so um, but these are products that you can only find in Japan is the thing. But most of these makers are like fifth generation family businesses. They've never left Japan. They don't speak English. So that's where we come in, partner with them to then pack and ship it to about 90 countries around the world directly from Japan, America being our largest market.
1: Talk a little bit about how difficult it is to get those products from there to here. Do you have to Bring them and curate them here. I mean, tell me about this process because one of the things that was fascinating was you seem to do this process a little bit differently than some of your both competitors and Mm -hmm. uh, predecessors.
3: Yeah, so we do it in a very kind of unique and novel way. I'll have to say that in the beginning. um, So I started the company about four and a half years ago as a solo bootstrap founder. I was packing boxes kind of here in my living room in New York City. And um, Back then, I was bringing snacks over in my suitcases from Japan here to New York, packing it into like boxes I would buy from like a paper source down the street, and then shipping it domestically. Now we've wow. kind of grown and scaled a lot since then. Where um, hold on, Danny, Danny, hold
2: on, Danny. Yeah. I'm sorry, Jennifer. Yes. Does that sound le? Does that sound like it's legal? I think what he's saying. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> he would bring, it su- he would
1: bring He would bring suitcases
2: do. of food from <laughs> Japan. And pack oh, no,
3: them I and then sell them. Listen. All the snack smuggling I did.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, Jennifer, I think we have an article for the magazine. and You know what it's called? <laughs> the
3: Future the, of Food. The, the Snack Smuggler. I love <laughs> Yes. I, I love alliteration as well. So did, I'm down for it. Did, <laughs>
2: did you play Smuggler's Blues? Did you play a lot of that, that music, that song Smuggler's Blues, when you were, were you like, <laughs> like when you were on your way in?
3: Did you strap anything to your legs or did you use pregnant women for anything? <laughs> I was very nervous at customs, though, because I had three large suitcases filled See? with these things. And they were like, instead of going through the normal line with, like, you just pass you through, they actually sent me to the scanner. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What's going to happen? Um, but I had a story in mind. It was going to be for, like, uh, my sister's wedding or, or some type of, like, samples because samples are always allowed. <laughs> was, there <any laughs>
2: Hello, was there any Hello Kitty stuff in there or no?
3: There was not. There was not. No, these are more of like okay, the good. kind of red bean cakes and kind of like the yuzu buns and things like that. Can I? But,
2: can um, I just say as a, to be on a serious note, Jennifer? I know you're in a hurry to hear what Danny has to say, but <laughs> you've got nothing to do the rest of the afternoon, so relax. <laughs> just relax. <laughs> I want to just say this. A very uh, uh, Dr. Kim, a Korean doctor who actually is an instructor at the university of Nevada, Las Vegas uh, takes me to takes me all the time to Korean barbecue and to all these Asian places that in Chinatown. And it's wonderful. Right. So she said, she taught me something. And I actually told Jennifer, you met Dr. Kim. Do you remember Jennifer?
1: Amazing. She's an amazing woman.
2: Okay. Thank you for your alliteration on Dr. Kim. I I already said that. (laughs) Dr. Kim said to me that red beans in the Asian culture are sweet Whereas red beans in the
3: Latin culture are savory. And by the way, that's all I'm going to say. You can get back to <laughs> I have a story about red beans I can get to in a bit. But yeah, it's, um, it's a very common kind of um, binding dessert throughout all of Asia, from Japan to China to Southeast Asia. Um, sweet red beans are definitely a big thing. And so we try to introduce that a lot to a lot of our audiences. Okay, moving on back is that
1: um, nowadays. Danny, I want to ask you, I want to point out the the obvious genius of what you're doing. You are bringing the kinds of snacks that people that travel to their home countries bring back with them when they come back from home. What are the first things you buy when you get there? And what are the the last things you pick up and put in your suitcase Mm -hmm. on your way back to where you're going? this is not an uncommon practice. What are the foods you miss the most? And I think there's something really powerful about the connection between our favorite foods, place, and sense of home. Can you talk a little bit about not just the lack of availability of those items, but what they mean to your customers? And what did you recognize as a business in that relationship?
3: Yeah so um, my background is that I'm from New York originally and then I was raised in New Jersey and then I went to college in California but then I lived in Tokyo after graduation for about four years got business fluent at the language and every time I would come back to the states I would be at the airport and there was just lines out the freaking store for these snacks at these like duty-free shops and whatnot. And you can see it's all types of people from, of course, expats and stuff that are, you know, Japanese expats, but the vast majority were actually non-Japanese. So it's both a connection for people that want to feel close to home when they can't go back there. But that, well, would, the vast majority of our customers are actually non-Japanese people throughout the world. And that is what we kind of target. So we're trying to be that authentic bridge to help them connect with the culture in a deeper way, because a lot of times people can watch a little TV, listen to some music, but to really taste something and smell it while reading about the history of this product and the magazine we provide is I think a lot more powerful and it makes you feel a lot closer to that culture too. And that's exactly what we're trying to do.
1: Do the Japanese make better snacks than any other culture in the world? Are you prepared to say that they've perfected- I'm
3: prepared to say that hands down, they make the absolutely best delicious snacks in the whole world, yeah. Everything from traditional to modern. So you have the red bean buns, but then you also have Bamkuchen, which is a German roll cake that imported during World War I in, um, into Japan. And since then, it has just risen in popularity. And they have like matcha versions of it, Canadian maple syrup versions of Bamkuchen made in Hokkaido. It's crazy stuff. Um, and it's all very, very delicious and fresh and high quality is the big thing for them. And the packaging is gorgeous too.
1: What's the relationship of the snack food in the cuisine culture of Japan that has elevated the snack food to something more than it is here?
3: Uh, for me, from my experience of having lived there and talking to makers and traveling throughout the country, a big part of it, I would say there's two focuses. One is that Japanese has this, Japanese people have this concept called shun, S-H-U-N, and it kind of means like peak freshness, where they eat seasonally, where that's kind of caught on recently in America. But in general, right, us Americans, we want our strawberries all year round. We want our blackberries all year round. But in Japan, they only eat strawberries in the spring and they only eat like, um, certain things in certain seasons, like chestnuts in the fall, et cetera, where it's at peak freshness. And that also even gets transferred into their snacks. Like there's a lot of snacks that you could only get during certain seasons. You can't even get it the rest of the time, which is almost a little crazy because it is kind of consumer packaged goods. Um, but it's like kind of this idea of eating fresh and using ingredients during that time period. Number two is also Japan's focus on craftsmanship. And I think a lot of people can see that from like their whiskies and their beers and their like all these different types of things. Judo dreams of sushi, where they spend twenty years making the same same egg omelet sushi. Things like that. Um, Also, then goes into the snacks. Where some of our we have a hundred year old candy maker in Kyoto that has been making the same type of hard candies for almost a hundred years. It's the fifth (gasps) generation president right now. That that
1: takes my breath away. Just the idea that someone is so devoted to that.
3: It's amazing. And when I talked to
1: him, like, oh, I don't
2: want to interrupt, Jen, but you said devoted. (laughs) And I want you to know one thing while Danny digs in his box. (laughs) I'm Um, hopelessly devoted to you. I'm going backstage with Robert.
3: One of the kind of, this is a yuzu sake candy that we co-branded with them specifically. And they're delicious. They have real yuzu peel and juice inside and they make everything kind of artisanally handmade, uh, which is the same recipe they've been making for about, um, like I said, a hundred years. And I've asked them before, why don't they expand? Why don't they hire more people? They have the same team size, which is about 10 people, not 99% of our family um, that they've had for the last um, few generations. And this other for them, it's not important that they become super big and super famous. It's more important that they continue the family tradition and they keep up quality to what they do. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's, that's not a very American mindset. Americans sometimes are very much about, like, especially in the startup world that I'm in, it's like, go big or go home. You either boom or you just bust. But in Japan, there's a lot of these kind of family generational businesses that are about keeping the quality high and just um, for they're looking at the long term of things.
1: Uh, Danny, how do you take that attitude and bring it into the startup world that you're in? How do you bring that mindset of something that is so irresistibly adoptable? How do you not meet a group like that, a family like that, have a candy like that and say, this is clearly the right way to do things. How do you then go into a world where that's not the case and say I think I'm going to do that here? How do you how do you marry those two ideas?
3: It's pretty tough at times to be honest. That's a great question because right a lot of times it's all about does it scale? Does it scale? Is kind of what we think about a lot in kind of especially the digital space. And a lot of these times of these production lines and these kind of more artisanal productions, it's harder to scale a lot of it. So it's been it's been kind of a progress over time. Like when I first started, we maybe had like 40 subscribers, most of which are my friends supporting me. And I was like handpacking it myself, as I mentioned. And back then, like, you know, we kind of built up our relationships little by little with these makers. And we were, we even had the most, um, the most memorable one for me is we used to work with this one, kind of like grandpa that was in like a kind of old town area of Tokyo that would hand glaze the rice crackers, the senbei, and package it himself. And we would buy like a thousand units from him um, like a year or two into our business. And that took him a whole month or two to even make it. Unfortunately, at our current size, where we're shipping almost like 15,000 or more boxes a month. Uh, we, can't really, he, we can't really work with players like him. However, with a lot of the family businesses that we've been working with for a few years now, they've scaled with us which is what's been really exciting and we just have to give them more lead time for them to kind of plan their productions but they just love that we used to buy one case of something from them now we're buying like 20 or 30 cases and um, they kind of and they've been wanting to sell their stuff overseas more and more especially since japan has a declining population as well as, like, there's Japanese people, like, young Japanese people in Japan have less of an interest in their traditional snacks than, like, people all around the world. So that's where we're helping keep their traditions alive by connecting with consumers in America, Canada, UK, Australia, et cetera.
1: Danny, do you feel like turning people on to these treasures is like letting them in on a secret? Or <laughs> do you feel like it's uh, one step uh, elevated from sampling? Which, which is the more likely um, and compelling?
3: <laughs> Did some title sequence just come into the... Yes,
1: that, that, <laughs> was, that was the blast that hand-delivered the box to us.
3: Yes. <laughs> um,
2: so so that's that's your question. Coming. That was the box of delivery. Did you see that, Jennifer, how that happened? It's like, boom, yeah. boom, and then there it is. So now I have my, thank you, Danny, for sending that so fast. See the services we get here, Jennifer? You ask, you receive.
0: Lovely.
1: Yeah. I, I want to get back to that idea. Danny, do you feel like you are letting people in on a secret? Or do you feel like you're introducing people as what will be their next favorite food?
3: Um, I actually would say both. Because the reason I'm saying both is that This is not really that, it it is a secret for a lot of Westerners that have not traveled to Japan or been there. But if anybody's been to Japan, a lot of these things are well known domestically, or a lot of people that have just visited. Um, And we were trying to kind of connect these with those people around the world. However, they're also getting kind of like sample sizes of it in the box so they can kind of taste it. We have about 12 to 14 unique products every single month and 20 to 25 items in total. And then if they do taste it and they like it, um, they could only get it, really generally speaking, through our website, Boxer.com. So we also have an e-commerce shop component of our website. It's a subscription box plus a market where we now carry almost 200 SKUs um, on what? a kind of permanent in-stock do you basis. Have, do you have any vending machines? Boxer vending machines? <laughs> that would be the dream. I would love to. I, you know, Danny, have a vending machine. <laughs> Danny, Tang,
2: I can make that happen for you.
3: Let's talk about that and make that happen. That would be great. I think we
2: should do that in in <laughs> California. I think California mm-hmm. is a pr- right. We want a high Japanese population.? Right? Las Vegas. Of course, Las Vegas, no problem, no problem. No, as they say, no problem. I got this, man. We will have vending machines for Danny tanks Ba That's for sure. <laughs> okay, so let's- and Robert, Robert, that- Robert, by the way, who's backstage, could probably negotiate with some re- real estate landlords in New York to get some of these vending machines in there too. Yeah. Although the vending business in uh, New York, a little rough. You know what I'm saying?
3: Yeah, I would be afraid of putting vending machines on in New York City. <laughs> but, but
1: You know what's really interesting to me? We're looking towards the future. We're trying to get every operator as excited about reopening when the all-clear signal is given. And what's so interesting to me is – that we're going to be amalgamating all aspects of a digital future. Nobody mm-hmm. denies that where we've come in this period of pandemic online, it's unlikely that's going away. Robert, you see it from one side. Danny, you're seeing it from the other. And I'm, I'm opening this up to a, a roundtable discussion for us to ask the question, since you're in two different dimensions of a retail uh, food experience, um, certainly from the boxes and your online store to what has been uh, restaurants in operation in brick-and-mortar space. Guys, what do you think? And, and, and this is a really unfair question in some ways because there is still uncertainty. But uh, how are we going to amalgamate the operations of existing operators on both sides of the digital divide to a successful future?
2: Well, let me answer. Let me answer.
1: this worries me.
2: (laughs) So, so if we go, if we go digital e-commerce, right, you would think Robert wouldn't have any business, right? You would think Robert wouldn't be able to play storefronts, right? But that's not true because these storefronts are, 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 are sort of a marketing tool, right? They don't need as much space and they also need warehouses. So Robert Greenstone has an entirely new business that we don't even know about yet because he's, th- he's forward thinking. Robert, go
0: ahead. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's, exactly, it's exactly that. First off, uh, Danny, it's nice to meet you. I think that, quite frankly, um, at this point, you don't need brick and mortar and I wouldn't recommend it. I think that your, your market is um, explosive, but it's also knit. So you have to uh, create that brand awareness, and, and then you have to start thinking about it. A lot of people don't need stores, but a lot of people do. And you have to understand what these channels of distribution bring. And uh, I believe that if you, like I, I've been in meetings with uh, the chairman of Bloomingdale's and Literally every vice president they've had sitting around 22 people around uh, a a conference table hashing out ideas for food courts in Bloomingdale's and doing all sorts of things, and it and and everybody sort of agrees that e-commerce e-commerce is nothing we could do. But the fact remains that what is available in e-commerce should not be available in brick and mortar or at least not to the extent it is because that uniqueness that we're talking about when we talk about unique experiences it it doesn't resonate when you could buy triple a batteries it's it's a waste of of retail space if you will if it's a commodity without a well you were
1: saying that before if it's a commodity it doesn't have to have anything special going on
0: well not much but, but then again, I'm a recent convert back, because I'm my age, to vinyl music. And I <laughs> say that I need a great vinyl store, as opposed to looking for what the same 20 titles are online. I need somebody who's a curator for me, like Danny. I need somebody Mm -hmm. who's going to be involved in it. So when I look at department stores, they're all leased out space to various designers and they carry all the same things across the country. And that's great, but you need to try stuff on. I'm not saying no, you need to be able to touch it and feel it. But when, when someone goes to Japan and actually tastes something They want to bring something home with them, and they always want to bring that back because that has a positive resonance with them. The same Mm -hmm. thing with the store environment that has a resonance with them. The same thing with the kind of merchandise. But when you devalue your merchandise by making it available everywhere, I actually believe in the small retailer. I believe in that small retailer, as hard as that struggle is, and I want to open up as many unique stores as possible. And I think that the stores on Bleecker Street should all be unique. I think all the stores on Fifth Avenue should have a unique element to it. They're vastly different. The stores in Brooklyn, I love those uh, those merchants. You know, here's something really crazy. If you go onto the New York City uh, website, they will start talking about who the retailers are and gonna, you're going to find the majority of the new retailers are immigrants. And those immigrants bring with them their sensibilities. And those unique sensibilities are being sought out just for that. I'm going to make this blanket remark now, and I guarantee you can't disagree with it. The, everyone is frustrated right now. Everybody is indoors. Everyone has a, has a desire to get out. Do you know what their desire to get out to do is? Anything. They don't care what it is. They are just chomping at the bit to get out of their apartments, out of their homes, to be able to resume their life. So just the experience of going to the store is the experience that will take root. But once you get past that, what are you? Who are you? What do you bring to the table? Are you doing the same exact thing? Are you always selling vanilla? And I don't think selling vanilla is really where the action is going to be. Because Mm -hmm. if you take a look at Las Vegas, they position each casino to be different. One's Paris, one's New York, one's this, what's that, Taj Mahal. Whatever it's going to be, they're going to try to differentiate their product. Product because they need to. Yeah, they
3: need to. I agree with Robert that I don't think brick and mortar is going away in any time soon, but you do have to reimagine what it's going to look like. And from what my experience of running this company and growing it online, how you can stay competitive in this day and age, whether it be online or in person, is about experience and community, where you cannot just do straight commodities because Amazon is dominating that. And there's just like nothing you can do to compete against that. But if you're offering your customers, some new experience that's curated that they've never tried or tasted before while connecting them to other like-minded people that have the similar preferences that's where the kind of money is and where people go crazy for because they want to feel like they're not alone and they want to feel like they can bond with others about these new flavors and experiences they're having
0: I just, want to, I just want to add one thing. Uh, a, a, a favorite guy of mine, Lester Thoreau, used to be the dean of Sloan School of Economics at MIT many years ago. And he got called before Congress to talk about why Japan was kicking the United States' ass back when Sony and Panasonic and everybody was coming up and the U.S. Didn't, all of a sudden didn't know how to compete. And he said something very profound and it's very easy to understand. You buy things for two reasons. It's either cheaper or it's better. Okay, so now you go online and you look for who's going to sell you your tide or who's going to sell you your water. And you're looking for because you know what it is. Most of the stuff online is actually reorders. When you think about it, very few people are buying something unique, but they're buying reorders and they're just looking for price. So if you're a retailer and you still want to compete just based on price, good luck. Walmart's got that. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not it's not happening for you. You're a retailer. It's like a chef who, who keeps on doing the same thing. If his burger is the same thing as somebody else.
3: Right. Another element to all of that is the because if it's just purely about you know, price, then it's going to be hard to compete, which is why a lot of retailers also need to show the personality and the story behind their product and their service. Um, we did that from not only having this magazine in the box, but we just released last month um, our very own original web series documentary called Snack Bites, uh, where we actually went to Japan with like a small st- like kind of skeleton documentary film crew. And I visited five of our traditional snack makers um, for over two weeks. And we've like got over 40 hours of footage of me interviewing them in Japanese about their family histories, where they're coming from, why they're making their products. We edited it down into like, five four minute episodes and we released it online last last month and like oh. it got huge rave reviews. Things like that to really show people where can we find that
2: Danny? Danny where can we, we find watch it? Because Robert, Robert and I want to see that.
3: <laughs> Boxer.com <Robert>. slash <laughs> I mean, we're gonna we're gonna go off our Henny
2: of Youngman stuff and then we're gonna watch that.
3: <laughs> Is it translated at least? It's subtitled, of course. Yeah. So um I did the subtitling and translating. So it's uh it's, uh, it's pretty good. It's, uh, I mean, we kind of did it all of our own. So you got to take with the grain. salt. So it's not next. next right, Boxer.com slash snack bites, snack, b i t e s Um, all That's one true. word. And then you'll get right there. Yeah. And like things like that is what you got to do to differentiate yourself in the market nowadays, because we're not like the cheapest snacks. Like if you want cheap snacks, you can just go to your local grocer and get like a Ritz cracker or something. But if you want to know the story and connect with a new culture, you got to show them why they want to invest in this product with you.
0: And and truthfully, a retail store is the embodiment of your unique experience, your unique selling point. From my point of view, if you're <laughs> selling that kind of merchandise, if, if you're selling the kind of merchandise that needs to be displayed and you're trying to make that convincing story, you should also, also be doing what Danny's doing. But you have to do it all. And that's really takes a lot of resources and that takes a lot of thought that that really goes into the whole pro- process of being a good business person So that's that's really what we're talking about how to be the best mm-hmm. business person we can be
1: well in the very nature of business transactional business okay. is changing on some level and on some levels it does not change at all and when mm-hmm. you say that the great differentiator is someone making a decision about whether they want something better or cheaper I don't think that's anything other than a representation of a of a human nature awareness that we have, so right. Danny, given that that's the case, you know that a cheaper better um you you've also sort of added to that evaluation cheaper, better, different, different can be better, cheaper, not. And really broadened that simple equation to include an entire category of things that um, require discovery. And there's something really wonderful about the digital world that we're all transacting our business Mm -hmm. in that lets us explore the different as well as the cheaper and the better. Cheaper, we know where to go. Walmart and in uh, Amazon. Better, we are getting a handle on what better actually is. And we're hoping that better survives mm-hmm. because when the economy's constricting, it's going to be hard to buy caviar and, and other better mm-hmm. things. Uh, if a place like um, Petrosian or Russ and Daughters goes out of business and I can't get my better bagel anymore, I can't get a better czar cut salmon. So so let's just talk about that a little bit, how it's not merely different uh, it's 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 a it's a it's an entire new way of transacting business. Can I get your reaction to that?
3: Yeah. So I, it's interesting because something I talk about a lot in the sus- subscription box space that's a little bit similar to those categories you mentioned is there's generally three types of subscription boxes: discovery, access, and replenishment. And replenishment would be things like razors and things that are not very branded, and you just get them really cheap. Um, And then discoveries where you the the different, right? Where you're learning and you're finding something you didn't know before. And then access is being able to get that stuff, like where you wouldn't be able to, because the caviar store is out of business or something. And nowadays everybody needs to aim towards at least one or if not two of these categories to survive in the e-commerce world. Um, And in order to kind of support those businesses, people have to, customers have to be aware that cheap prices come at a cost and that like, you might have to start, paying a little bit more for the things that you took for granted because it was all subsidized by Amazon and Walmart's kind of ridiculous business practices and things like that, you know? And so I mean, don't get me wrong, I I love (laughs) using those businesses and such, but you gotta know what you're doing when they knock on your
1: door the same day you've made an order.
3: Right, right. It's not going to arrive in two days. I mean, even Amazon can't deliver in two days nowadays, right? Like, it's there's a cost to all of these things that people are taking granted for so long, and that people need to be aware that it costs money to get your favorite Japanese snack from Japan or your favorite caviar from Europe or something like that, and that you need to.
1: But Danny, I'm going to go back to the old New York that I love. Uh, when Robert, you you grew up in a New York where you could call the business down the street and. And you'd order something and that it would be delivered the same day. I mean, pr- prime you, delivery you, you, you existed before
0: you would. But truthfully, your way of thinking was you picked yourself up and you went to the store <laughs> and you saw it and you smelled it and you tasted it and you tried it on. And, and you looked at retail as, as a um, part of your life, even if you didn't make um, it as such. But the thing, the thing is crazy about New York is that for as big as it is, it's a bunch of small towns because we know our butcher and we know our, our cleaners and we know the people and our doorman tell us where to go that you know, I have a doorman that tells us where to buy the sanitary wipes and I don't even know when he leaves his, his position to get that kind of information. But we have a network of people that tell us exactly what, what's going on. One of my clients is uh, Citarella Markets. And uh, Joe is one of the hardest-working guys I know. And I had a lot of people that always asked me, "You, you know, you know Cinderella. Why doesn't he carry toilet paper and paper towels? You know, I'd love to do all my shopping." And I posed it to him, and he said, I "Don't make any money off of that. That's not where I, what I'm known for. It comes back to what are you known for. So when you talk Bobby Flay, I mean, I used to get drunk with Bobby. But when he first opened Mesa Grill, and he and Jerry Kreshman taught me the real estate, the real the restaurant business. Really, I didn't know. I was a schmata guy. I was selling clothing before that. But he taught me what it meant to have the right kind of gas capacity, or the right kind of venting, or the right kind, of whatever it was going to be, and how to how to do what he had to do. the The fact of the matter is these guys and the people that are watching this right now are experts. They know their business. They're sick and tired of being asked the same silly, stupid questions about what they're doing in business. They have a totally different sensibility. We all do. It's a three dimensional sensibility. You have to empower these people to go out and do what they do best. And truthfully, I'm sorry to say it, but the underlying cost of doing that really hinders a lot of retailers. The underlying cost of running real estate hinders a lot of great development. I mean, there's just, this has gotten to be a very expensive society that now has unemployment at 36 million people. Uh, we have to figure out what that new reality is that we can adjust. Our cost basis, because our cost basis affects everything, everything. Our freight for Danny, or our real estate for our retailers. Our cost basis has to be recalibrated. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. None of your tenants can do it alone. When I imported things from uh, Europe, I couldn't hedge currency. I wasn't Mm big aren't big enough. We're not big enough. But we have to speak in a unified language that says we have to rein this in because it gets passed to the consumer. And the consumer only has so much money also. Mm -hmm.
1: Gentlemen, before we uh, go, we've only got a couple of minutes left. I want to say what is the biggest threat the pandemic is presenting each of your businesses right now? And is it truly a threat or is it an opportunity? And how are you looking at it, gentlemen?
3: For us, um, we rely heavily on a global supply chain and working global shipping logistics, and that has been severely interrupted from the pandemic, starting from March until still now, where um, air freight is out of control, postal service networks are not delivering internationally to a lot of places, and so we've had to get really creative about how we can get our product to our customers in still a scalable, cost-efficient way. And that has been um, really difficult, as well as just a lot of our supply, um, suppliers in Japan are having their productions interrupted from not being able to get raw materials, workers, et cetera. And so that's a huge, huge deal. At the same time, for us, this is also an incredible opportunity. E-commerce is accelerating faster than it ever has in the history of kind of um, as long as it's been around for the last few decades, where we're seeing like more and more demand because people now, for example, this year, there's supposed to be 40 million visitors to Japan from all around the world especially with the Olympics that were supposed to happen. All of their trips are canceled, but they still want to get to know Japan. So now they're looking online and having Japan delivered to them through us. Um, so we're kind of trying to straddle both for those right now.
1: And, and when you're telling me that that's part of the challenge that you're facing, um, is this going to change how you do business moving forward?
3: Yes. In the sense that we were overly reliant on one solution for shipping in the past. And that's no longer going to be a case going forward. I'm going to have more backup options, more warehouses, more like ways to have fallbacks in case of another crisis hitting and affecting supply chains and shipping. Because that like really set us back um, this past month or so. And that was really quite painful to that. Like people have been waiting for the boxes for um, like a few weeks or a month or two or something like that.
0: Robert, same question to you. I think communication is really uh, the answer because uh, right now, um No one has figured out the exact solution to it yet because the costs uh, of entry are so high with retail. So by communicating with people like myself, I act as a conduit to um, landlords as well as real estate uh, people who are who make real estate decisions for uh, companies as well as uh, re- you know independent retailers. They need to rely on us, And we need to rely on them and communication is really where it's at. Because right now, with with so much uncertainty and the cost of entry being hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars to open a store, they have to be able to make correct decisions. You cannot do that in a vacuum. Right now, because of the situation that we're in, we cannot tell in good conscience somebody just to open up. We would like to say, hey, take advantage of the market right now. But we don't know how long that will be, and what their staying power that changes situation by situation.
1: And Robert, before I let you go, there is how many million square feet of retail uh, real estate in New York City?
0: Hard to say, honestly. I think that um, any number I throw out is is probably going to be. Um, uh, fictitious. Uh, I, I honestly don't track that. What I do track, though, is the negotiability factor. And here's what I, I, uh, what I talk about. The length of time it takes to lease any given space. Because every space being so unique, when you add it all up together, if you have 100, 200, 300, 500 listings, how long does it take from the time in which one wanted, wants to rent it to the time it takes to come to terms? So that, to me, is more, more important than the, just the number of, of square footage, because that number is changing all the time. I mean, uh, is it, is it um, you know, 80 well, million what, square feet? Or well, 12?
1: What's, it, the, what's the length of time then?
0: Well, the length of time was it, it would happen on an A, B and C location, a location would actually take a little bit more time than a B location. A B location is being more cost efficient. An A location would take uh, several months. Uh, A B location could take, um, let's say, 50% of that because you would have more independent people that were looking for a lower cost of entry. And a C location today, goodbye and good luck. (laughs) Goodbye and good luck because nobody needs that nobody needs something that you know they're going to be doing all the heavy lifting themselves
1: well the reason i was asking about the millions of square feet is i was going to ask you the question given that there are millions of square feet of retail real estate in new york city that have had a history heretofore and we Mm -hmm. know that there is a digital future awaiting us all what is the best use the most imaginative utilization of all that retail space moving forward to f- to foster and support yeah. any kind of business and vitality in the culture and the community of New York or anywhere, because what happens in New York happens across the country.
0: Yeah. Well, first off, food and beverage is, is key right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the need because of its
1: immediacy because i'm hungry and i need to get something to eat right now
0: i need to eat every day i need to eat every every day day. you need to eat every day here's here's the thing look at h&m look at zara um you used to be able to buy clothing and, and wear it 20 times and then say, I'm starting to get tired of it this season today with the Instagram, uh, population, you buy something, you photograph yourself in it once, maybe twice. You don't want to be seen in it again. And there's a, there's an immediate need to throw away and there's a throwaway disposable part of fashion. There are those, but again, we're going into various tiers of, of, uh, retail price points. Um, what is the underlying cause somebody needs Gucci and Chanel versus they need uh, rag and bone? I mean, there, there is a whole different um, mindset that goes into the decision-making process uh, and, and truthfully big data. So you have um, just, just market segmentation. If you're not doing market segmentation, you're not doing marketing. You you are just not. You have to know who your customer is and very, very specifically. And then you'll know exactly where to locate and how much you can afford and what the size of your population is gonna be. And anyone thinks that they have a product for everybody is fooling themselves. Danny, so, I'm gonna
1: give you the last word.
0: Um the question about the retail
3: space, right? And what we wanna kind of do and change it with, finish, or
1: you can finish us up any way you <laughs> can help you because we've had a really robust discussion today about the future that awaits us all and anything you can give to know Mm because what i anticipate is that many operators on every level are looking to you as the future of any kind of operation and maybe you've got some key ideas that you can share with them about how you can have both a, a a real edible and digital existence in some sort of retail environment of the future?
3: I mean, it's kind of gonna harken back to what I said before, but what I think is gonna be really important for especially anybody watching or in the future that wanna start their own business is to not necessarily think that they need to open a brick and mortar store right away. I mean, Robert talked about all the astronomical rents and all the costs that go into it. Setting up a Shopify store cost me like $30 a month. And I got it set up within like a week and I was able to launch and get my business going with little to no external capital. And like this is a pretty common thing that's happening in e-commerce right now because there's a democratization of e-commerce with a lot of platforms and apps and tools that you don't need a lot of engineering knowledge and coding to be able to set up. And I would recommend a lot of companies look into that first to find the product, the thing that makes them really popular in their niches to then grow from there. And then from that point, go into like a pop-up shop or experiential or kind of partner in a market somewhere to then um, kind of bring people in a kind of a storefront type of a situation is what I would recommend doing into the future. Like starting as retail in this day and age would be really, really difficult um, well, right. for a lot of people. But,
0: but I, I would say, Danny, uh, not only in defense of, of what I do, but in defense of the people that are trying to do it, they right. need uh, a, a restaurant is a factory. It is producing something. They need to be able to do it. Even if they are doing it out of a basement and they run three different restaurants out of the basement and they have a commissary kitchen and they're able to do it with apps. One thing that they, a lot of people aren't taking advantage of actually are creating their own apps to get away from Grubhub and mm-hmm. stuff like that because they're taking 30% of the profit margin. So. Right. It's I agree with the uh, idea of having convenience. I think that um, retailers need to rethink what they're doing. And I think that uh, 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 New York City in particular is a uh, city of interactions. And you, mm-hmm. you, cannot, you, you don't want to see New York City be devoid of stores. You just don't want to see it. It's not New York City. It becomes uh, someplace in Texas that you get into your car in a building and then you drive to another building and you get out and you go upstairs. And and there's no life. This is not what New York City is founded on. And so, and I think that many urban centers are like that. So we have to help retailers, reimagine the business. and, And I agree when you have a product like what you're selling, you have to make certain judgments that call for that. But- um, you don't go to culinary school to um, learn packaging. you hire a packaging person that'll do that. And you just like anything else, there is a passion that goes around with food. Right. And and that's first of all, it's coming back.
3: It's just a fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I was talking more. Of, I mean, if it's a restaurant, you have to have a place that you can't ship. Restaurant food in a box. Right. So, that, of course, that needs to have a, an actual storefront. Right. right. I'm talking about more so, like esoteric.
2: it was more esoteric, Jennifer, but we've <laughs> yeah. we got to yeah. wrap this. This could go on forever. Yeah, yeah.
1: But hang on. <laughs> I want you to look. Just pull this screen right here. You see the two of them? My, yeah. bre- you know what I've been imagining this whole time we've been together?
2: I don't think we all, anybody needs to know that, Jennifer. <laughs> this is a family show.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Robert, I'm I so sorry. Just Just come with me. Come with me. I'm, I'm fantasizing that Danny in his apartment has a window just to his right. And that Robert looking out his window just to his right. If you look on the screen, there's a small frame in the window where there are two upper and lower windows, okay? I'm imagining Mm -hmm. that Danny is in that upper window, that that's the room that Danny is in. And that unbeknownst to either of them, they're literally across the alley from each other in New York City.
2: Jennifer, this- that's fantastic. Thank you for that insight. Guys, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Let's all stay in touch. Thank you very Let's much. Get this- yes. Robert, we're exactly. going to come very back to you very sooner much. or later.
0: Very good. Danny- so good. Everybody, just remember, Danny had his website there. Ours is GreenstoneRealty.com. So just Greenstone
2: one. Realty.com. If, and if we are, are. going to be talking well, a lot more to Robert. We're we are. Jennifer, stop. Yeah. I'm going to knock these guys off and you and I are going to talk. Okay. Because now it's <laughs> Thank live. Thank you very much. All right. Bye guys. Okay. Thanks Thank guys. You. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Now. I can't
1: wait to try those snacks.
2: Okay. There you go. Okay. That was oh. At least Robert's still watching. Oh, he's off too. They got good. they they're good. Great guys. You were getting crazy on there. You were getting crazy. I, I, getting said crazy. This, I set
1: this show up because I knew that this was going to be a juicy one for you. This is yeah, a giant, juicy. juicy corned beef sandwich of a show for you.
2: All right. Can we go now? I've got a three-year-old yanking at my feet. And I love it. I want to go kiss him. Go kiss we'll your kid. To you I say
1: every show, hug your kids and count your blessings. Join us again tomorrow.